Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. Daniels, and you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels, and this is August 4th, 2015. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, it's 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, tonight's topic, financial toxicity. Are you suffering from financial toxicity? You know, you can't make this stuff up. This is actually all the buzz in the medical literature, especially the uh, cancer medical literature. And so what we're going to talk about tonight is what is medical toxicity? Um, you know, how's the diagnosis made? Hey, you know, this is a medical illness. What the heck? And, you know, who's suffering from it and, uh, and what's going on? This is like I said, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, sometimes you wish you could. But medical toxicity, uh, of course, as with all medical conditions, has a definition. And uh, the definition of medical toxicity is when the symptoms and distress from the cost of the therapy actually exceed the therapy itself, or actually exceed the uh, toxicity and distress from the disease itself. So this is financial toxicity. It's actually a medical term. Now, (laughs) when I was a kid, uh, actually a teenager, first of all, as a kid, I grew up in a ghetto. So like nobody had any money, so it was no big deal. How could you ever have a financial problem? Because well, there wasn't any money, right? That was kind of the, just the basic understanding. But then I became a teenager and I went off to college, went to Harvard, and I sold books door to door. And people would come to the door, waving their hands, saying, "Don't stop here! Don't stop here! I am financially embarrassed." And I had no idea what that was. And so I asked the lady, "I said, well, what does that mean?" 
And she gave me such a graphic dis- description that I was nearly embarrassed. She said, I am so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed. I can't pay any of my bills. I can't pay the phone bill. I can't pay the light bill. I can't pay the rent. I can't buy food and can't even buy clothes. I don't even know what I'm going to do about it. And I said, wow, that's embarrassing. So financial toxicity, as I was reading about it, sounds a lot like being financially embarrassed. Now, the shocking thing about financial toxicity, of course, is you don't really get the diagnosis unless you have insurance. So this is a real shocker. So let's see what the big boys have to say. This is uh, cancertreatment.net. These are the you know pro medical industrial complex people, and um, they think everyone should get uh, as much health care as possible. So they're like like really gung ho about this. And here's what they say: financial toxicity is a very new term. It was first hinted at in 2011, but not truly introduced and defined until 2013. This is like most diseases that they're, they're cultivated and discovered and created. While not an official term, it is gaining ground as more and more people come to accept the reality of just what a cancer diagnosis can mean to patients financially. And so uh, there's something called the Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Washington State, and they actually did a study. And it determined that a cancer diagnosis could be considered a risk for personal bankruptcy. In other words, of the many possible reasons an individual may have to file for personal bankruptcy, receiving a cancer diagnosis could qualify as one of them. Now, remember, half of all people are going to get a cancer diagnosis during their lifetime, right? Okay, so keep that in mind. Let's see where this leads. So the research term found that bankruptcy rates were almost twice as high among cancer patients one year after the diagnosis compared to the general population. On top of that, the median time to bankruptcy was just two and a half years after diagnosis. Wow. Now, does that mean that half of all people with a cancer diagnosis declare bankruptcy in just two and a half years? Or does it mean that of those who declare bankruptcy, half of them only took two and a half years to do it? I don't know, but either way, it's pretty scary. But it sounds like Bankruptcy rates were twice as high among cancer patients and one year after the diagnosis. Okay. On top of that, the median time to bankruptcy was just two and a half years after diagnosis. That's pretty darn quick. And so patients diagnosed with cancer may face, may face, whoa. I don't think may face. I think they do. People with cancer do face significant financial stress. And they say owing to income loss, yep, that's bad enough, and out-of-pocket costs associated with their treatment. Wait, wait, wait a minute. We just had the Obama, Obamacare Act. Is that right? Yeah, Obamacare. And, uh, or the Affordable Care Act, if you want to call it that. And so these people have insurance. So I'm saying out-of-pocket costs. They're implying people have insurance because there's non-out-of-pocket costs. So lead author... And this is at the American Society of Clinical Oncology, AFCO. It's a 2011 annual meeting. On average, bankruptcy rates increased fourfold within five years of diagnosis. Well, this is just, this is awesome. <laughs> this is incredible. 
this means that this is such an efficient extractor of money that all you need to do is go to somebody. Instead of saying boo, you say cancer. And they drop all the money they have. They go to the bank and liquidate their assets. And then they borrow more money to give you. This is awesome. This is, this is financially awesome. Those of you who are not in the cancer industry, um, you know, this is implying that uh, cancer industry individuals are extracting a heck of a lot of money from individuals. Now, one of the conclusions reached by the research team was that oncologists, that's doctors who specialize in cancer, really need to acknowledge and address the impact of the cost of cancer care on their patients on an individual basis. Now, wait a minute. Who is prescribing this care? That's what I'd like to know. Who's prescribing it? Well, of course the doctor is. So the doctor is inducing this condition. The doctor is creating this financial distress. In other words, if you want to avoid bankruptcy, the best way to do it is avoid cancer doctors. How about that? That's my editorial. They didn't put that in this article. So two years later, a pair of researchers from Duke, very, very prominent prestigious university, if Duke says it, it's probably true, proposed a term to describe a new adverse event in cancer treatment. This is what they say. Out-of-pocket expenses might have such an impact on the cancer experience as to warrant a new term, financial toxicity. Out-of-pocket expenses related to treatment are akin to physical toxicity and that costs can diminish quality of life. Now, those of you who are listening, especially if you have a few years of life under your belt, you've probably had a day or two in your life that you've been notified of a severe financial reversal, whether it's a layoff or a firing or some investment gone sour. And you just know how you felt when you got the news of that incredible financial reversal. Well, this is what cancer people are experiencing. So when it was uh, presented, and of course it was uh, published in a peer-reviewed journal, they noted the strong evidence of a link between cancer diagnosis and increased risk of bankruptcy, which they believed represents an extreme manifestation of what is probably a larger picture of economic hardship for cancer patients. They believed there's some doubt. Bankruptcy represents financial hardship. Do you think these people are, are fraudulently filing for bankruptcy? I don't know. I don't think so. So what's the impact? So what does it mean to experience financial toxicity? It means that because of the extraordinarily high cost of care, they're saying cancer care, but I think financial toxicity can really apply to any care whose costs are so high the person's out-of-pocket expenses um, cause distress. So the cancer patient must make many difficult decisions. This is my editorial. Yes, the cancer patient has to make a lot of very difficult decisions. And the first decision is whether or not to act on the diagnosis of cancer. This may sound really really odd, but there are certain cancers that don't have a risk of increased death associated with them. Prostate cancer is one. And so then when you get this diagnosis, the first thing you have to decide is whether or not you're going to accept the doctor's interpretation of what needs to happen next. 
Now, this is a step most cancer patients just don't even consider. Don't even consider. They come home from the doctors, and first thing they want to do is, uh, well, first of all, these people are insured. So they've only studied insured people. So people are insured. So they, they're pretty sure that their insurance covers it. So they'll probably call their insurance company and say, hey, do you cover breast cancer? Or do you cover prostate cancer? Or do you cover colon cancer? The insurance company will say, Ah, sure we do. No problem. Don't worry. Of course, we can well diagnose it. Well, we're an insurance company. But, especially with breast cancer, there's a loophole here. Much of breast cancer chemotherapy is given in pill form. And the company may not cover prescription costs or may cover them in a very small degree or in a very small amount. And so breast cancer patients are often left with a $10,000 per month chemo bill because the chemo is given in an oral form. Okay, so these high costs, are saying, can have a negative effect on their treatment and outcome. For instance, they may cut back on the groceries they buy, which can impact their diet and negatively impact their health. Well, there's another reason they could starve to death, yeah. Patients might cut back on medications they're supposed to be taking or only partly fill prescriptions or not get them filled at all in order to save money. And a substantial out-of-pocket cost, such as repeated co-pays. Now, you only have a co-pay if you have insurance. Related to cancer treatment, for those who are insured or who are considered to be insured, but underinsured, can be catastrophic to patients. Now, I would say, if you have insurance and your bills cause you to go into bankruptcy, you definitely either A, did not have enough insurance, or B, did not have enough fortitude to say no. Or C, let's see, the option C here, you were deceived, you were lied to, you were not told the true extent of the financial commitment that you were making. And so you made a commitment that overextended you, resulting in bankruptcy because you thought your insurance company was going to pay when actually they were not going to pay. And so researchers decided that adding the idea of financial toxicity the list of adverse events experienced by cancer patients was justified. And um, surely many pe- pa- patients would agree with them. Okay, so this is one um, perspective on the definition of financial uh, toxicity. Uh, I'll just give you an example of financial toxicity from my own experience as a medical student. And I didn't realize this was financial toxicity, but it was definitely toxic. And this is not even cancer. This is just a simple, inexpensive diagnosis like high blood pressure. Again, this was back in the good old days. We call it the 80s. And so, and this happened a lot. People would be on blood pressure medication. They would be on the water pill which make them pee a lot, and they'd be on the beta blocker, which would slow their heart rate. And then they'd be on this pill called the potassium pill, three pills. And what people would often do when they didn't have enough money is they would stop the potassium pill or cut back on it. And this would make their potassium go lower, 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 and occasionally they would die from a potassium that was too low. This is the ultimate in financial toxicity. In other words, the person's lack of money caused the therapy to actually become lethal and deadly 
and to kill them. Now, if this patient had only asked, well, somebody would ask me, I would have told them that you have to cut back on either the beta blocker by cutting it in half, or you have to cut back on the water pill and potassium equally. So this is really unfortunate that when patients are given therapies or therapies are recommended that are way beyond their financial means, they don't know what questions to ask. And you really need to know what questions to ask. Because if you do decide to proceed with therapy, there are actually ways you can cut back on your therapy that at least won't increase your chances of dying. Not that the therapy was effective anyway, because we now know that that treating hypertension does not increase life expectancy. So here's the uh, Cancer Network people and uh, their cancernetwork.com. And it's the home of the Journal of Oncology. All right, so this is like totally medical, medical, medical. This is their side of the, this is their perspective. This is their side of the problem. So I just like, you know, get my facts from the guys who, who, who do this stuff. Okay, so growing problem. Because we don't have, we don't travel. We don't do anything now because it's a $100,000 illness. And it sucks. What are you going to do? Caught between a rock and a hard post. And this is what a 67-year-old insured woman with metastatic breast cancer said. This is how she described her life to her cancer doctor due to her cost of cancer care. So he's saying, well, we all hear about the cost of care at every turn. Healthcare reform is at the forefront of the national debate. And the debate is carried on in medical journals. And, you know, but where in the mix is the patient? And that's that's great. It's never in the mix. So you never hear a discussion of the patient by the patient. So this is this financial toxicity diagnosis is an attempt uh, to get a little touchy-feely edge on this, what I would call grand larceny, uh, mutilation, dismemberment scheme. But so what what these cancer doctors are doing is patting themselves on the back for looking, even looking at the patient perspective. So buried somewhere in the, she- in the sheaves of dire projections and cost trends, this lady's daily experience with the cost of cancer is lost. But her experience does not fall on deaf ears. Great. So daily, cancer doctors listen to these life-altering, cost-related complaints, along with reports of tiredness, nausea, and pain, all of which, of course, they're causing with the chemotherapy. However, to date, most of us have not considered financial distress in the same vein as chemotherapy-induced toxicity. Well, actually, of course, this is my editorial, it is chemotherapy-induced toxicity because, of course, it's the cost of the toxicity, I mean, the cost of the chemotherapy that's causing the financial toxicity. And so this guy is saying that uh, we should consider it in the same vein as chemotherapy induced toxicity. So what they're saying is, the implication is, of course, that it's not chemotherapy-induced toxicity. It's something different. Okay, all right. Well, this is the, you know, these are the experts talking. So in the first part of a two-part series, these people actually wrote a second part to this, we will describe the patient-level impact of the cost of cancer and what they call uh, financial toxicity. And so what they have to ask is, this is what they're asking, are patients paying more out-of-pocket for their cancer care? And the answer they're saying is yes. 
So these experts, these cancer experts are saying, yes, patients are paying more out of pocket because cancer treatment is more expensive, treatment is overused. Whoa, what patient do you know getting cancer therapy from a cancer specialist that was not recommended by that specialist, right? So who's overusing what? I mean, you can't blame the patient for overusing uh, cancer therapies or chemotherapy. And three, the rising costs are passed on to the patient. So the rising cost of cancer has been described in detail in the United States as one of the most expensive diseases to treat. Well, I would certainly say it's one of the most expensive diseases to have. Second only to heart disease. Oh. And, of course, the cancer-related expenses are rising. And they have four reasons that the cancer expenses are rising. And these are a little, uh, little mild concern. An aging population. So what's the answer to aging? We all know what that is. The answer to aging, of course, is programmed uh, death, planned death. Okay, so aging is a problem. Aging is a reason for the high cost. Okay. More patients with access to treatment innovation. Okay, so increased patient access, they're saying, is an issue. And overuse. Okay, that's three things, but they said there were four. So aging, more access, overuse. Okay. And also the fourth thing might be that patients, older patients are at greater risk of developing cancer, but that's still uh, aging. So more people are having cancer, cancer diagnosis. Now, I'd just like to pause here and say, you know, you have to say, wait a minute. If a person, if the life expectancy in the United States is, let's just call it 76 years of age. And obviously, anyone at age 72 who gets cancer, it's not possible to cure them, right? Doctors don't have that technology. And so you can tell someone who's 72 years old, hey, these therapies we have don't work for you. We know they don't work. Why? Because you're 72 and the average life expectancy is 76, and so we know that these therapies are not able to extend life beyond 76. And therefore, it would be fraud to treat you. Now, I don't think we hear that discussion happening very much. Uh, because if we did have that discussion, um, a lot of people age 72 would say, you know what, I'm going to go enjoy my life. And a lot of them, guess what, would live beyond 76. And so what they're saying then is a growing aging population has access to more expensive interventions and it's a cost to society. No, it's no cost to society. It's the cost of the individual. That's what financial toxicity is. These individuals are paying their own way. They are not a burden on society. They are not uh, pushing this off on someone else. So these people are taking the burden on themselves, experiencing financial toxicity, experiencing bankruptcy. That is exactly what's going on. But these doctors are saying, well, this aging population is increasing the cost to society. Especially those interventions have minimal benefit or use contrary to the evidence base. And so they're saying what I said in a very flowery way, which is, if cancer cure is designed as five-year life expectancy, then anyone who is within five years of the expected life expectancy should not be treated because by definition they can never experience a cure. And what's really happening is their whole inheritance, everything they would have left to their children is just absolutely destroyed. It's sucked up, just evaporated. That's it. That's exactly what's happening. So 
you older people out there, don't let anyone tell you that you are a financial burden to society. Because we see here, that's not what's happening. You are being bankrupted. You are being drained of all your resources so that the next generation starts off with, uh, shall we say, uh, an even slate or an empty slate. So this is what these people say, the experts are saying. The rising costs of cancer care are most often discussed at the level of health policy. In other words, not in the exam room, with an eye towards social financial burden. But let's return to this one patient, Janet, you're saying, an insured patient. And again, this financial toxicity thing happens to insured patients. Because the uninsured patients, they usually say, well, stop. I don't have any money. Let's just stop right now. <laughs> so it really is a problem of uh, people who, who are insured. And they're saying, even though cancer is an expensive disease, her insurance should cover her costs. But we hear more and more cases like this of debilitating out-of-pocket expenses. So now, they're hearing about stories like Janet, but they shouldn't even need to hear about stories like Janet because I didn't even need to hear Janet's story. All I needed to do was look at standard medical therapy for breast cancer. And I could see... And then I got a standard insurance policy, got mom's insurance policy. And I took a look at it, and I saw that if mom got breast cancer tomorrow, she's 83, then her out-of-pocket expenses would be at least $10,000 a month. So all you need to do is just get a policy, see what it covers, look at the therapy you're proposing, see which therapy would and would not be covered. It's pretty obvious. And you can easily see that unless a person has at least $100,000 in liquid assets, uh, you know, they're going to be uh, impacted, even if they do have insurance. But these guys uh, did not do that. But that's okay. Okay, I understand. You know, experts are experts. It's okay. So the answer, so why are insured patients facing increasing out-of-pocket costs for cancer care? And they're linking the answer to this question back to the rising social cost of care. As third-party payers bear an ever-growing cost burden, they have shifted a portion of those costs to patients. Cost-sharing can trace its history back to the RAND insurance experiment. So what they're saying is that they're letting these insurance companies off the hook. They're saying insurance companies, you know, basically uh, aren't, you know, they're they're, they're paying claims. They're they're paying these claims. It's an ever-growing cost burden. But let me put it to you this way. 2015. If you're a patient and you go to a doctor, your copay more or less is $20. $15, $20, somewhere around there. Okay, let's rewind back to the good old days, 1980. Let's go to 1975, 77. The average doctor's visit out of pocket was $20. So now you're paying the same $20 out of pocket. But now, in addition to that, you pay anywhere from $500 to $5,000 a month health insurance. So that's basically what has happened. Now, how it has happened and the technological breakthroughs. I mean, if you like these play-by-play, blow-by-blow descriptions as opposed to just the final score, you know, you can get into all that. And quite frankly, there's all these articles here, and they do get into all that. Um, But the bottom line is people have seriously uh, been had. They're saying the insurance companies are in, in, you know, shouldering increased costs. 
cost sharing can trace its history back to the Rand Corporation, and they did they did a, a study showing that insurance works, costs are less. However, insurance has also become more expensive for patients. Premiums increasing nearly 170 percent between 1999 and 2011, compared with worker earnings increasing only 50 percent. Wow. And cross prescription drug co-payments have increased as well. Now, this is really disingenuous because I was in medical practice from 1990, in private medical practice, 1990 to 1999, well, no, to 2000. And the real truth here is that in the early 90s, most insurances didn't even cover prescriptions because they were just so friggin' cheap. So to say that um, the portion of workers whose drug plan, you know, that, that the drug costs back then were also being covered, that's just not, just not true. Because back then, they just didn't even cover prescription drugs. The prescription drug co-payments have increased as well. No, they haven't. They've decreased. Because a co-pay is measured in percentages. And the percentage co-pay back in the early 90s was 100%. The person had to simply pay it. Now copays are like 10%, 5%, and there are many drugs that are simply uh, not covered. Okay, so the portion of workers whose drug plan had three tiers increased from 27 to 63%. So here you have insurance, but there's three tiers of insurance depending basically on your income. And so you're taking these three people who are working every day, who are paying health insurance, and you've got the low tier, the folks who clean the floor, a medium, medium tier, the ones who walk to the office or, or, or sit at a desk in a cubicle maybe, and then the upper tier, which is, um, we'll call it upper management uh, because management may still be in cubicles. You never know. So what happens then is just what insurance was designed to get rid of, which is a stratified tiered system of care where you, you have the, um, the untouchables, uh, then above them you have the have-nots, and then above them, you have the have sums. So these tiered systems, tiered economic class systems, were supposed to be eliminated by health insurance so people had health access to health care. What I found in my medical practice is this was absolutely not the case. Um, people who had insurance actually had less access to me as a physician than people who had insurance. Very interesting, very, very interesting. So people who had no insurance... They would decide they wanted to go see the doctor. They knew exactly what it cost, and they would save up the money, and when they got together the money, they would come see the doctor. So they could probably eke out maybe one or two doctor visits a year, for sure. And then when they showed up, they said, look, doc, this is it. Shoot my wad. Do the best you can. I can't come back. <laughs> and so, of course, they had almost zero chance of becoming uh, financially embarrassed or experiencing financial uh, toxicity because... They knew what the visit cost, they knew what the cost was, and they knew how much they could afford, and that's what they would do. Now, let's take an insured person. An insured person would have a deductible of, let's say, uh, back then it was only $100, and beyond the deductible, they have a copay of, let's say, 20%. Well, they didn't know if this visit was going to count towards their deductible or not. They didn't know if it was a deductible visit or if it was a copay visit. They didn't know if they had to pay 100% or 20% or what portion was copay or what portion was deductible. They just didn't know. They had no clue, no idea. 
And then, let's say their deductible has been satisfied, they've received the letter, they're very excited, and all their, all their visits are uh, 20% that they have to pay. In my office, of course, the prices were fixed, so it's very upfront. You could call for an appointment and ask the receptionist, what's my visit going to cost? And she would tell you. However, in other doctor's offices, you never knew. You get the uh, consultation fee, then, oops, we have to do a stress test. It was a stress test fee. Back then, they were $1,000. I don't know what they are today. And then on and on and on. So you can go in for what you think is going to be maybe a $100 expense. I mean, it is a specialist, right? And then walk out with a bill for two, $3,000. Of course, the cardiologist thought this was just great. Uh, and they told me so that it's great being a cardiologist because you can manufacture these very large bills. However, this is the crux of the issue is that the people with the insurance had no clue how much their personal responsibility was going to be. And so they were often blindsided with these very huge bills. And if you've ever gone to a doctor's office or a hospital, the first thing you do before you even see anybody is you sign a personal responsibility statement saying that you are personally responsible for any and all expenses. And it's amazing that people sign such a thing when they don't even know what the expenses are going to be. Can you imagine saying, uh, committing to purchase a car and the guy at the car dealership says, well, I can't tell you how much the car is going to be, but I need you to sign right here saying that uh, you commit to uh, purchase this car and you commit to pay whatever it costs for this car. And, of course, you have insurance, and we will take that into consideration. Well, most people would just say, how are you serious? Are you asking me to sign a blank check? What, do you think I was born yesterday? I'm some kind of a minor? I'm a grown-up. I don't make those kind of decisions. I'm responsible. Hmm. But in uh, healthcare, people are asked to sign these blank checks, and people with insurance willingly and unknowingly sign what amounts to a blank check every time they check into the hospital, every time they see the doctor. And so, um, okay, so this is that's my editorial, not theirs. So what they're saying is patients like this person they're calling Janet, who are sicker and need care that's more intensive than standard primary care interventions are not necessarily represented by prior insurance studies. And so cancer patients experience a higher out-of-pocket financial burden than those with chronic diseases. Now, again, I've looked at these uh, insurance premiums or insurance policies, and I'm shocked that they are literally written so as to exclude cancer care. And I'm just like blown. I am blown away by this. I invite any of you listeners to take your insurance policy, your health insurance policy, actually read it. I mean, really read it. And then, then ask yourself, okay, if I had cancer, and pick your favorite cancer. It doesn't matter. Colon cancer, breast cancer. Let's pick a cancer. Pick cancer, any cancer. And then go to your doctor and say, hey, if I had colon cancer, what would you recommend for me? And he'll tell you. And you can look on the Internet and see what the cost would be. And then and say, hey, who would you refer me to? He'll give you the name of a cancer specialist. And you go to the cancer specialist office and say to the reception, how much is my visit? Uh, what would you charge me for the visit? Uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So what's the doctor usually recommend? I mean, you know, of course I know every patient's different. What do they usually recommend? And go through this exercise. It's worth it. It could save you $100,000. It could spare you bankruptcy. It could spare you financial embarrassment. It could give you a legacy to leave to your children. 
God, I think it's worth it's worth the exercise. When I did that with my mother's policy, I was I was floored to see that if she got breast cancer, she would have a hundred thousand dollar out of pocket expense. And this is just from asking her mom, what's your policy cover? What's your deductible? What's your copay? And she doesn't even have a catastrophic policy. Her deductible is very low, as low as, as low as you can get it. So she's got all these policies that layer on top of the Medicare policy. All right. So what happens to an insured cancer patient when she receives expensive treatment and encounters the cost-sharing model? This is really a euphemism. The cost-sharing model is not cost-sharing. It's bait and switch. It's her insurance telling her, see ya, you're on your own. (laughs) Good luck with this. And so what happens when she encounters this cost-sharing model? And so expanding body of evidence suggests cancer patients with insurance are dealing with cost implications as part of their cancer experience. In fact, out-of-pocket expenses have such an impact on the cancer experience as to warrant the term financial toxicity. And so this is really absurd. It's so absurd because it is obviously a doctor-induced situation. It's the doctor recommending these therapies that are creating the financial toxicity. And these very same doctors, these cancer doctors, who are recommending the therapies that are causing this condition are treating it like, oh, it's a strep throat. It's a, it, it, it's a new disease. Um, but actually, it's one that they have definitely caused. No doubt about it. So what are they saying? 13% of cancer patients reported high financial burden compared with 9.7% of those with other chronic conditions. Elderly patients with cancer also report high out-of-pocket expenses. And evidence suggests that average out-of-pocket expenses for cancer care, including premiums, can be over $5,000 a year. Oh, this has got to be an old article. Let's go back and see if we can find a year on this. 2013, okay. So now premiums alone are $5,000 a year. So these people are financially or experiencing financial toxicity before they even get the diagnosis. And so uh, 11% considered the cost of treatment a great deal when choosing a treatment course, and 9% decided against the treatment course because of cost. Our recently completed national study of cancer patients most of whom applied for copayment assistance, found that a large portion reported either a significant or catastrophic financial burden. These patients, all of whom had health insurance, were spending their savings, canceling vacations, working more hours in order to afford their cancer care. And according to mounting evidence, Janet is not alone in feeling caught between a rock and a hard spot. Now, this is serious lifestyle modification. Now, if you said to Janet up front, we can treat your cancer, but you got to uh, cancel your vacations, work more hours, deplete all your savings, what do you think she would say? You know what? I think I'm going to take my savings and take more vacations with the brief time I have left. So uh, what we're really talking about here is a transfer of wealth because every dollar that any cancer patient is paying out to the cancer industry, whether it's a hospital or whether it's chemotherapy or the doctor, whatever, is going to another individual, a human being, and that individual is using that money uh, to take care of their family. So this is simply a transfer of wealth. 
Is it Dr. Daniel? So are these people being cured? Well, there's no evidence of that. The industry itself, cancer industry itself, confesses that approximately 4% of people who receive cancer therapy benefit from that therapy. When I say benefit, it means that they're uh, cured. Now, and they would not have been cured had they not received the therapy. In other words, where they actually receiving the therapy made a difference in their life. So the cure rates for cancer are very high. They're very high. But how many of those cures would have still been experienced had the person never received therapy? The answer, according to the cancer industry, somewhere in the area of 96%. Shocking, isn't it? So what these people are suggesting, these, these doctors, is that we need to find out if patients want to talk about costs with their doctors. And what about chemotherapy-related physical toxicity is addressed? The way it's addressed early and often, well, how about addressing financial toxicity? And when should it be included in the decision-making process? So this is really, um, really interesting. Now, of course, the uh, question is, well, just, just how, how, bad, how bad is this really? And I always like to go check out the um, PubMed, which is the National Institutes of Health, and see what they have to say. And this is from their website. And uh, this is a pilot study assessing out-of-pocket expenses and the insured cancer patient's experience. This is, this is really telling. Co-payment assistance applicants were more likely than non-applicants to employ at least one of these strategies to defray costs. And so 98% of people who say, you know, I need a little help paying these cancer drug bills are doing things to save money that they were not doing before they got this diagnosis. They are cutting back on leisure activities reducing spending on food and clothing, using savings to defray expenses, um, taking less than the prescribed amount of medication, partly filling prescriptions, and avoid filling prescriptions. So these are the things that people who have the cancer diagnosis routinely do. And a tremendous number of people are, 75% of those who have cancer actually even though they're insured, 75% of people who have cancer and are insured actually go through the humiliating process of applying for drug copayment assistance, whatever that might be. Those of you who remember the good old college days where you had to fill out financial assistance forms and beg and plead and reveal all your personal private information, and then still you receive what's called assistance, um, not sufficient enough to relieve the burden of going to college. So really, uh, you know, a large number, around 85% or so, even if they don't, so 78% of people who do not apply for copay assistance end up tightening their belt in one of those ways. 98% of the people, so 98% of the 75% are engaging in these activities like cutting back their food and their clothing, depleting their savings, and cutting back their medication. And so in other words, 
having health insurance is not relieving financial stress. So co-payment assistance applicants are more likely than non-applicants to do these things. And in adjusted analysis, the younger age, larger household size, applying for co-payment assistance, and communicating with physician about costs were associated with greater subjective financial burden. Now, this really gives a lie, totally destroys the credibility of people who say, well, I don't want to drop my health insurance because, well, what if I got cancer? Well, here it is. This is what's going to happen if you got cancer. If you get cancer, you're going to get financial toxicity with your health insurance. And so the conclusion is, insured patients undergoing cancer treatment and seeking copayment assistance experience considerable subjective financial burden. Wait, stop. People who don't seek financial assistance, 78% of those experience financial burden, whereas 98% of people seeking assistance with their drugs experience financial burden. So you can't say that seeking co-payment assistance means you're experiencing financial burden because we can see that 78% of those who are not seeking co-pay assistance are experiencing financial burden. Again, this is an excellent example of a study whose conclusion is not supported by the data. This is why it's so important Whenever someone says, well, a study shows, you should actually go read the study yourself. Not people I say, oh, Dr. Daniels, you know, I don't have a Harvard degree like you, or I don't have a medical degree like you, or I don't have an MBA like you. To that I say, really poppycock. <laughs> I also say, you know what? Your new perspective may actually, may actually be very revealing. In other words, your perspective is just as valid as, say, your doctor's perspective, or as the person who did the study. In other words, this is supposedly accurate, objective data, right? So you can look at it and draw your own conclusions. And, uh, you know, if someone just disagrees with you, that's okay. They don't have to agree with you. But your conclusions are valid. So don't, don't feel intimidated by that, because this is all written at more or less seventh grade level. You can do it. Okay, so what they're saying is, Health insurance does not eliminate the financial distress or health disparities among cancer patients. So people's major reason for having health insurance is, what if I get cancer? The answer is, if you get cancer, your health insurance will not eliminate your financial distress and it will not eliminate health disparities. Simple. So worrying about the big C is not a reason to have health insurance because as this study found, um, and this was published in the Oncologist Magazine 2013, health insurance does not release the financial stress of cancer. And it doesn't relieve health disparities. So in other words, if you're, uh, so say, middle class, you're not going to get the same health care a wealthy person would have just because you have insurance. Why? Because the amount of health of, of money that you're going to put with it, you simply don't have. You can't bring it to the table. And that's what we noticed in our medical practice. We would see uh, lower middle class people, let's say the maintenance guy or the, um, the guy who fixes equipment or the guy who mops the floor at the university would get the same high-end plan 
that maybe the manager would get or his boss would get. There, there was so much bureaucracy, these guys couldn't even see beyond the next level up. They would get that plan. All right, gotcha. And they would be paying these really high premiums that were just an absolute stretch for them to pay. And still, when they came to the office, they'd have to pay the co-pays and deductibles. Okay, fine. But they were doing it. They were doing it. They're making that reach. And what did we find when we sent in their claims? We found that literally the claims of upper management just went right through. Boom, 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 boom. They were paid without question. The claims of these people who are mopping the floor and fixing equipment, even though they paid the same monthly premiums, they were denied, they were questioned, they were rejected. We literally just count on submitting their claims twice. Very, very interesting. And so what this study is showing is uh, they don't go into this kind of, you know, fine detail because, of course, none of these guys ran a medical office um, to experience this. But what they're saying here is that having insurance does not remove health disparities among cancer patients, health disparities due to income level, and does not eliminate financial distress for any cancer patient regardless of their income. This is, as they say, news. And it's such big news that the Wall Street Journal's got involved. <laughs> I love it when the Wall Street Journal talks about something. If the Wall Street Journal talks about it, I mean, you know it's gotta be it's gotta be big. And so what does Wall Street Journal call this? They call it Pharmalot, as in Camelot for drug companies. I can only guess it definitely is. But they call it Pharmalot, P H A R M A L O T Pharmalot. All right. And so this is the Wall Street Journal, and it, their headline is Financial Toxicity, Who's Really to Blame for High Cancer Drug Prices? Now, I would expect a little more uh, from the Wall Street Journal than this than to just play a blame game. Uh, I personally think that whoever's to blame is actually uh, irrelevant. Personally, that's me. But the Wall Street Journal actually they disagree, and it's okay, because what they're looking at, they say here, is that Pharmalot explores a fast-moving, complicated world that develops and markets medicines. Uh, markets means makes money and sells. And the drug makers that are attempting to replenish their pipelines while grappling with pricing and regulatory dictates, among many other challenges. And you can go on and on and on, but the bottom line is, what the Wall Street Journal tells its readers is, is it time to invest? Or is it time to divest? And that's really kind of what their articles are aimed at. And so if you look at uh, who's really to blame for high cancer drug prices, the Wall Street Journal reader is reading this to try and figure out, well, who's getting the money? Whoever's getting the money, that's who I invest in. So that's their perspective. But people watching the show, you guys are kind of like the patient perspective. So we're going to take the patient perspective. Okay. And this is this is what uh, what they say. The issue of expensive cancer drug is hardly new, but 60 minutes. Okay, 60 minutes aired a segment. That's it. it means they got to cover it too. And of course, this was the other night, and it covered this controversy. And so the bottom line here is this: a doctor at Memorial Sloan Kettering, New York, rejected the use of a medicine. So 
sold by a particular company. I'm not going to say their name because I don't want to trash anyone's stock prices because the price tag was more than $100,000 or $11,000 a month. And so this accelerated the debate over rising drug prices and forced the company to respond. And to placate physicians, the drug maker offered a deal. Doctors could buy the drug and then they would be reimbursed by insurance at the usual rates and also receive a check from the drug company for the difference. Well, that's kind of cute. And so they lowered the price in a way that doctors could get the drugs for less. And so the doctors could basically double their money if they used this particular very expensive drug that was sure to bankrupt their patients. Uh, you know, I, I tell you, if patients had any idea of the backdoor, backroom deal that buttressed or supported or created the recommendations their doctor made, they would be, that would make them sick, probably sicker than either the cancer or even the financial ruin. And so what the uh, Wall Street Journal concludes is there is no logic to the prices being charged, nor is there even a hint of a sound explanation of why prices are high or why there's any justification for raising them year after year. And uh, this is very interesting. Of course, uh, Art Kaplan, who's the head of the bioethics division at New York University, uh, says this. And, and this means, of course, access is limited by price, and copays quickly become burdensome, and people go into debt to finance care, and the nation is burdened with huge costs. Now, we say the nation is if a patient getting cancer therapy is somehow a burden on his neighbor. Well, I'm telling you, they are wiping out these cancer people financially in such a devastating way that you really can't look at a cancer patient and say, you burden on society. I mean, they are, they are the engines pushing a very big industry here. So the... Um, the Wall Street Journal is basically saying, hey, there's no rhyme or reason for these high prices, and which is good for a reader and also for an investor because if there's no reason for the high prices, that means there's a high markup, a high profit margin, hey, time to invest. And so that's the Wall Street Journal's uh, contribution to the discussion. So we have about five minutes left, but I just want to talk about a solution really quickly. Now, the industry has its own solution. So what's the industry solution? The industry solution is go for it. Go for broke. Go for broke. You medicate each patient to the ultimate total complete financial limit, stratify the care, and you know, find out what the person's financial resources are and treat to the limit of their financial resources. I think that's a bit inhumane myself. Um, but again, I'm not in the industry. <laughs> you know, I got no skin in, in this game, no dog in this fight. But this is what's going on behind your back when you receive a cancer diagnosis. This is the, the absolute total discussion, which is how do we extract even more money from um, these unfortunate people. And always, 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 you have to stratify the care. It's like flying an airplane. You create economy class. You make it as miserable as possible. Then you have... Um, enhanced economy, then you have business, and then you have first class. And each, at each level, the um, financial extraction is uh, exhilarating. So how do you avoid this? 
answer if you get a cancer diagnosis, the first thing you do is question it. It's only a 50% chance that what you have even requires therapy. Uh, second, don't sign any blank checks. When you check into the doctor's office, when you check into the hospital, do not sign anything saying, I, Mr. So-and-so, accept full responsibility for paying this. No, 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 no. You ask me each day, you ask me with each expense if I'm going to pay it, and then I'll tell you. And that is what, and that's, that's the way, you know, you tell them. You want to be treated like an adult. You want someone to ask you before they uh, empty your bank account, put a lien against your house, and deplete all your resources and steal your children's inheritance. So those are the big, the two biggies. One, oh, also have a budget. Have a, a realistic budget. In other words, what do you want to spend? You want to spend a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, half a million, whatever. Just make a budget. Very important to make a budget. Even if you're independently wealthy, make a budget. And tell the doctor, I have a budget. This is my budget. What can you do for this budget? Or even better, what can be done? So you plus everybody you're referring to and chemotherapy, everything else has got to fit into this budget. And I assure you, you'll get a lot better treatment, actually. Or a lot more honesty, for sure. Because we're going to say, you know what? I'll tell you the truth. You really can't do much for that amount of money. So let's take a look and see... <laughs> what we have here. Okay. <laughs> Someone in the chat room says, Doctor, the big thing we've learned here is we have to ask for a second opinion. No, don't ask for a second opinion. I mean, you can do it, but it's a waste of time. You're only going to get an echo, right? That's what last week's show told you, is that they create a uniformity among doctors so that all doctors will recommend the same thing with less than a one in one million deviation. That's what's going on. So the doctors uh, don't really have much of a choice here. Health insurance doesn't cover cancer. So if you get cancer, and does this mean you're on your own? The truth of the matter is, the policy doesn't say we don't cover cancer. But what the policy does, it doesn't cover the ca- things cancer specialists are more likely to recommend. And so they, that's the way they get around it. So they don't have to say, oh, we don't cover cancer. Instead, all they do is just uh, not cover the things that cancer is more likely to require. Okay, we have a few seconds left. Actually, not very many. So I invite you to especially forward slash candida, and get your report on uh, really the most powerful natural therapy of all time, which is incredibly inexpensive uh, at your local hardware store, of course. And so... That's it. Goodbye for now. We'll see you next week. And next week is What's It All About, Elsie? What's it really all about? What's what's going on here? So I'm going to spill the beans. As always, think happy.